This is No Ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends moving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. I'm Jeremy Maggs and a very warm welcome. Now, just two weeks ago, you might remember, we were asking whether South Africa had turned a corner following a lost decade of corruption and maladministration, all exacerbated by harsh lockdowns in the face of the pandemic. In the ensuing fortnight, events have taken a dramatic turn for the worst. The violence, looting and damage to key infrastructure in recent days is unparalleled in the history of a democratic South Africa. It's now abundantly clear that what we're dealing with is an orchestrated insurrection whose masterminds are exploiting the desperate poverty and inequalities in our society as part of their efforts to render the country ungovernable. In the words of the government, we are witnessing economic sabotage intended to cripple the economy, cause instability and severely weaken or even dislodge the democratic state. In this episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we count the economic costs of this latest setback in the country's journey to economic recovery. Now, Investec structured property finance specialist Nozipiwa Balfour will give us an indication of the unrest's impact on the commercial property sector. Early indications are that at least 200 retail centres have been looted and damaged, some set alight and razed to the ground. This over and above the many hundreds of smaller outlets and informal trading businesses that have been destroyed. We ask what the prognosis is for rebuilding and what these events mean for trade operations for tenants and landlords. And as government failed to contain the violence over several days, the country's vaccine rollout was hampered just when it was picking up pace. Several vaccination centres were closed or left short-staffed as health workers couldn't make it to their respective sites. In this week's burning question, we'll ask the Health Department's Deputy Director General, Dr Nicholas Crisp, about the far-reaching implications of the unrest on the important vaccination rollout. But first, on No Ordinary Wednesday, we'll be asking Investec Chief Economist Annabel Bishop about the impact of the unrest on economic recovery. How has this development changed the economic growth outlook? What will the ratings agencies make of all of this? And just how nervous are investors? Annabel, a very warm welcome to you. South Africa, as we all know, is once again in the international headlines for all the wrong reasons. Just how bad is it, I wonder, for the economy? Yes, hi, Jeremy. Look, I think it's it's a very dire situation from some perspectives. And I think, obviously, you know, we know the destruction to investor confidence, both domestic investor confidence and foreign direct investment. You know, people reconsidering perhaps if they want to actually do bricks and mortar investment to South Africa. But, of course, also consumer confidence, business confidence as well. But, of course, we can't get away from the really, you know, inescapable truth that we have damaged a lot of infrastructure in South Africa. Productive capacity, you know, whether it's um, where houses, whether it's uh, factories, of course, people's livelihoods, retail, large retailers, small retailers, and of course, many other areas as well. You know, the bottom line is it's going to take a long time to rebuild. Some may choose not to rebuild, but I think we could actually be at risk of a contraction in GDP in the third quarter. And that's not just because of the collapse in economic activity in the past week in some areas of the economy. It, obviously, the second round effects, you know, are the destruction of these uh, productive forces of capacity 
technology that I was talking about, your factories, your you know, distribution warehouses, but also, of course, as well, the investor confidence. But lastly, you know, we really find ourselves in a situation where many actually may just choose to be quite anxious. They may not choose to spend. I think it's going to provide a hit on your, your retail sales. People might find it's not the time to buy durable goods. Just harking back to one of the measures of consumer confidence, you know, the BR is now a good time to buy durable goods. Now, people may be conserving their money, of course, but overall, I actually think it has been a very negative shock to South Africa's psyche. But I do think it's going to have a long lingering tail effect on confidence. And of course, this comes at a time when we did see the economy lift up quite strongly. We saw quite good economic growth coming through earlier this year in recovery from last year's harsh clampdowns. Still not recovering all the ground lost, but we know we were much quicker than we'd expected. And I think this is just quite a knock. This is quite a knock to, you know, where we were a few weeks ago. I certainly agree with that uh, phrase, a negative shot to South Africa's psyche. What ordinary South Africans, Annabel Bishop, would be worried about is food insecurity. We've seen that already. And also the spectre of job losses, no doubt. Absolutely. You know, and it's it's actually chilling. You know, so many people on the breadline already, so many people who were marginal in terms of their ability to earn incomes. You talk about livelihoods and lives under COVID, but, you know, here, livelihoods being destroyed by wanton looting. And of course, we mustn't forget that while it was sparked by um, the hardcore ardent supporters of the um, Zuma regime, according to many um, news reports, but also, of course, coming through from the um, government as well, many in government talking about this, you know, it was, of course, um, fueled by the opportunistic looting and of course criminal element but that really morphed as we know into something else into the poor really taking advantage as well to help themselves and of course this comes after a decade you're talking about the 2010s now you know 2009 2010 after 2019 before COVID hit us a decade of slow economic growth failure to obviously put in place support measures to um, help the economy while at the same time seeing the economy hollowed out by state capture seeing it's institutions hollowed out. And of course, the net result seeing a very suppressed economic upturn of only 0.2%. Essentially, the economy stalled in 2019 after good growth in the early part of that decade. COVID, of course, you know, worsened the situation last year. And of course, you know, we now find ourselves where, as I said earlier, we are trying to re and rebuild. But now this is just another, another really, really harsh impact. So I do worry um, a fair amount about where we go from here, because unfortunately, we still are not seeing the economic reforms we need to see through from Saul Ramaphosa's government. And actually, I think it could continue to weigh on the ANC and cause it to lose ground in elections as we move forwards, because they are just not delivering on the economic growth reform agenda. You know, we're not finding President Saul Ramaphosa as proving to be the reformist um, president that perhaps many actually had hoped he would be. We're not seeing the growth enhancing economic reforms coming through. In fact, we are seeing quite a few populist policies still coming through as well. I just want to rewind slightly to the point that you made, Annabelle, about economic reform. We heard the president in one of three uh, state of the nation addresses or uh, state of the situation addresses talking about this new urgency to carry out economic reform, to relook at that economic reconstruction plan. One wonders, given what you've outlined, whether this might be the call that finally galvanizes government into some sort of accelerated action. You know, Jeremy, I think I agree with you here. You know, the, the reality of the situation is um, 
And it wasn't to be unexpected at all. It was actually quite likely to happen. If you're poor and devastatingly poor in particular, let's not forget some people even battling to feed themselves on a daily basis and everyone else is running off and looting and coming home with televisions. I mean, it's quite natural to want to even just go and get groceries. And, you know, this is the harsh reality where we actually cannot criticize many people who are just trying to fend for themselves and families in what's proved to be a very disappointing few years in terms of reforms which actually could have been pushed through. And of course, we continue to talk about the Zuma faction and the Ramaphosa faction. Sadly, this is now believed to have caused this devastation, people's lives lost, livelihoods lost of the past week. We, we need to understand that the problems are not going to go away. South Africa has seen their livelihoods devastated by COVID-19 and of course, more people becoming poor. And now we are finding ourselves in a situation where reforms that should have taken place a few years ago haven't come through, haven't borne fruit, and we still are facing a weak, anemic growth environment. And we mustn't kid ourselves that, you know, the RAND is reflecting anything positive in South Africa. It's actually reflecting, yes, positive commodity prices globally and the fact that we export them, that our demand is so weak. You know, we import very little compared to what we did do because the economy is so suppressed. And of course, you know, we know that one of the key mistakes was the overly harsh lockdown last year. So, leading on from that then, as an economist, Annabelle Bishop, what do you want to hear in terms of key national priority right now? With the caveat that we can't keep talking, that this has got to be acted upon sooner rather than later. I suppose, you know, there are some things which have already happened which give people confidence and support, and that is that they are keeping the military in place now to guard national key points. As an economist, we find the national key points, whether it's electricity stations, you know, the Richards Bay Harbour, the... Durban Harbour, you know, water treatment plants, all of those are absolutely vital to the functioning of the economy. You would perhaps feel we need more rollout of security forces to protect, you know, other re uh, the retailers, the manufacturers that haven't been burnt down, not just in KwaZulu-Natal, but across the country. So, so that, those are worries. But I think the fact that government has now finally come out with a strong response to that, that is something positive has happened. But, you know, what we would like to see going forward, I think, is a further calm restored across the country. We're going to have to see continued aid and charity to those who've, who've lost so much. And, of course, what I probably would like to see is that government actually doesn't just repay the those who have lost their infrastructure, um, goods and premises through Sastria, but, in fact, extends it to all in the private sector who've lost their businesses and livelihoods. Because... Absent that, we're going to come out of the smaller economy because of this. If you broaden your reforms to all the other areas of the economy, well, obviously, we know we still find ourselves where there are many slow points. Annabel Bishop, Investec Chief Economist, thank you very much. In a moment, we're going to zone in on the commercial property sector, one of the hardest hit by the unrest, with Investec Structured Property Finance Specialist Nozipiwo Balfour. But first, a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. Nozipiwa Balfour, headwinds for the South African economy, setbacks for business and consumer confidence, as we've just heard. But the commercial property sector is now arguably in the eye of the storm. As if the ravages of the lockdown weren't enough, property owners are now facing billions of rands in damage to their infrastructure and serious questions about the ongoing security of future developments. I'm wondering, as we start this conversation, if we have accurate figures on the extent of the damage. I would imagine 
it's fairly difficult to quantify. It is quite difficult to quantify, Jeremy. So, I mean, we've seen there's been a significant amount of damage in the commercial property sector in KZN and Gauteng. And I recall last week, the Etoguini mayor actually came out with the initial estimates that, albeit the financial and structural losses not as yet ascertainable, that about 45,000 businesses out of were out of commission in KZN alone, and an estimated 1 billion amount of stock had been stolen. And from their initial you know, estimates from an insurance perspective as well, there was about 15 billion rand worth of damage incurred. So, I mean, those were the initial figures uh, communicated from Etekwini. I don't think we have necessarily seen some of those calcs coming out from a Gauteng perspective. All right, let's talk a little bit now about insurance, if we can. We've heard that claims to property damage resulting from unrest underwritten by SASRIA. What is SASRIA? Well, that's the state-owned insurance agency. The question is one of, is there capacity within this organization to settle those claims? So uh, from a SASRIA perspective, and them being the only insurer in South Africa that provides the special risk cover for this type of loss and damage, given such events, quite a few of our clients you know, have started the processes of claiming from their existing insurance policies. And from our initial estimates and understanding SASRIA's balance sheet, there's roughly about you know, 32 billion rand that they'd be able to assess as part of those claims, but 7 billion rand on balance sheet. And you know, I think the major impetus really at this point, and we've, which we've been guiding our clients to do, is to proceed with claims. The pace, of course, is the most critical thing at this point in which they'd be able to get assessors out being able to assess what form of damage has taken place. And from a few of our clients, we understand that to date they've been they have had assessors, you know, on site aiming to process those claims. But I think that it would ultimately, you know, go down to the extent of the damage. I mean, we've seen already with some of the malls, some of them have reopened where there wasn't substantial damage and there have been massive cleanup efforts by the communities to actually just proceed. So hopefully with those claims, they'll still be processed, but it is ultimately going to go, come down to timing. And I'm glad you mentioned that critical factor because delay is what is either going to make this process successful or not. So even if insurance does pay out, it's a question of when, as you rightly say, the result or the consequence of that could still see business closure as a result of the civil unrest. You know, the business closure aspect for us and the way in which we view it has really comes down to two things. I mean, the the recent events have really been a double blow amidst the pandemic and also the subsequent level four lockdown restrictions that were already imposed onto the sector. And so I think we can expect that sort of your smaller to medium sized businesses would be massively impacted versus your larger corporates or retailers that could quickly function or pivot and get back on track again. For us, you know, we foresee, of course, the, the impact would be to continue trade and operations of these malls and tenants. And hopefully, you know, we were not going to have too many casualties that have come about as a result of really this being almost a, a third leg to continued weakened, you know, property fundamentals, COVID-19 pandemic effects, and now the civil unrest. Nazi people, that's fine, but what about retailers and particularly those small businesses, those I imagine in the formal sector that don't have insurance, 
things surely become a whole lot more difficult for them. Agreed. And I think that has been the most you know, saddest outcome of the recent attacks is that many of the businesses that were impacted were those that were informal traders, smaller businesses that perhaps may not have had insurance. And ultimately, you know, we've seen many communities now, you know, come back in assisting with cleanup efforts and from retailers and landlords that have also aimed to assist in rebuilding, I guess, some of these properties that were looted or um, or damaged. And I guess it ultimately comes down to really a show of citizen citizenship. And we've seen that with many of the communities or areas where there were potential attacks, you know, many taxi associations and community leaders and members came out um, and condemning the violence, but more importantly, really rose up to the occasion to stamp out, you know, this this uh, chaos in ensuring that their businesses were protected. Case an example, as you had mentioned, now the support or the relief to some of the businesses was seen last year already, where many of these, you know, commercial property landlords via the property industry working group came out to provide relief to your smaller to medium-sized businesses. And I think at that point during our really significant lockdown last year, there was about 3 billion rand of uh, rental relief provided. We are of the view that we could see probably, you know, similar relief packages or initiatives uh, coming about from communities. Some of the smaller businesses themselves, such as cleaning services, and we'd seen a a fly actually from one of our clients that uh, one such business is a cleaning service, which is uh, aimed to provide free cleanup services to businesses that are small businesses that were impacted via the looting and damage. Nozipi, we're finally, and I'm really pleased that you use that word citizenship, because that's what all of this, the recovery, that's what it's going to come down to. So I wonder how quickly you think we are likely to see businesses starting to rebuild their infrastructure, particularly in those hard hit areas, given the quicker they start operating, the better it is for the economy. Agree, Jamie. And it is definitely a knock on effect. Um, You know, we were very pleased to see over the weekend the manner in which already the logistics and um, distribution chains were back in in action between Gauteng and KZN, which really is is a massive chain that supports retailers, which supports overall infrastructure and actually getting us our goods and services. And... The timing aspect, you know, we believe is is quite difficult to ascertain. It's almost like looking into a crystal ball. But we've already seen some of the business, some businesses pivoting. Um, in this case, online deliveries, for example, were impacted. But I think that many of the smaller operators that are able to work from an online perspective could easily go back to to business. And I think it ultimately goes down to how quick we can rebuild the communities. And, you know, the citizenship aspect is quite a critical one because you've seen some of those cleanup efforts, you know, coming in place already over the past weekend. And so for us, it's really about the ability for one, those insurance claims to come to come um, into play and be processed quite quickly for stores to be able to operate for goods and services, people to actually be back in their jobs, um, because ultimately, as much as we've got the work from home scenario for many corporates, you know, many jobs in South Africa's economy still uh, are reliant on people being present at their jobs and, and workplaces. And that's where we are going to leave it. Uh, Nozipiwa Balfour, Investec Structured Property Finance Specialist. Thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. 
In every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we do our very best to answer it. If you have such a question, all you need to do is to go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash now and share your question, your conundrum with us. Our government has been criticised for the slow pace of vaccination rollout and just as it seemed to be getting some momentum, passing the milestone of 100,000 jabs a day, chaos, as you well know, ensued on the streets of Gauteng and also in KwaZulu-Natal. So here's the question. Just how badly have recent events set back vaccination efforts? That's our burning question and I'm going to put it to the Health Department's Deputy Director General, Dr Nicholas Crisp. Dr. Nicholas Crisp, a very warm welcome and thank you for taking time out from what I imagine is a hectic schedule. Let me wade in and I think the obvious question to start off with is to what extent has the public violence, the turmoil of the past 10 days or so, hampered the vaccine rollout? So it has unfortunately delayed the rollouts in KwaZulu-Natal quite badly because for a whole week we weren't really able to get out much to the field. So they were busy ramping up very nicely and aiming for 50,000 doses a day in uh, in KwaZulu-Natal. They were up close to 40,000 already when the violence started. And by the end of the week, they had gone to 2,000 doses a day to 5,000 in a few sites spread out around the province. So you could probably say we lost between 40 and 50,000 doses per day uh, opportunities in uh, Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. That was delayed. For five days at least. So obviously the challenge going forward is to try and make that up as yeah. quickly as you can. How are you going to do that? So the, fortunately the services are, you know, health people are incredibly resilient and although they've been under pressure for a long time, they were already asking for more vaccine and um, help to step up during the course of today. Even some of the private pharmacies with, that were totally destroyed, the guys were coming back and saying we need vaccine, we want to get out there and vaccinate people. So I think the response has been remarkable. We didn't deliver them vaccine last week because we didn't know how long. We deliver on Fridays to KwaZulu-Natal. And so we didn't send vaccine out because we didn't know how long it was going to be before they could get uh, going again. So they will get vaccine again now during the course of this week. In the public sector, we didn't lose any doses, at least. It, it's still all within the supply chain. So they're able to get going quite fast again. So how is all of this impacting on the broader government target? And correct me if I'm wrong, the aim, I recall, 300,000 jabs. So we're still aiming to do well over 300,000 jabs a day. So there are, there are four major parts of our strategy. This We call it a war plan now because the president exhorted us to go to war against COVID. The four strategies are make sure we have vaccine security enough vaccine available at all times to meet the targets we're trying to get to. Secondly, increase demand, make sure there are always people to get those vaccines to. And thirdly, make sure you have the capacity to vaccinate people. And that capacity is syringes and needles and other things, the sites to do it at in the right places and the people to do the actual vaccinating and looking after the vaccination sites. And then the final part of our strategy is what we're doing with the overall communication, monitoring and managing so that we target our resources to the best possible um, places to get efficiency in the system. So for each one of those four, there are very deliberate activities that are going on, securing of the vaccines. Obviously, we bring vaccines in from outside of South Africa. Pfizer vaccine is not a local product. 
Uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been under discussion for some time, and we are trying to secure those doses, and hopefully we'll know about that this week. We are concerned that we should probably have at least one-third vaccine in our arsenal uh, to make sure that if we lose supply chains in future, we can uh, at least uh, have a third one available. But the marketplace is tough, so making sure that that third one is always the right vaccine for the right variant is, is important to us. So that's on the vaccine side. On the demand side, we have opened up and, and increased to the plus 35s. Registration started on the 15th. On the first day, we got a million registrations. On the second day, half a million registrations. So that age group is busy registering, but many have already found their way to vaccination stations and are vaccinating. The older people are also being vaccinated. We've got outreaches to SASA pay points, mass vaccination sites in a number of large venues, a whole lot of public programs that are running, occupational health services running in a number of large factories and commercial enterprises. So there are many strategies for, for getting to the population. The people within our catchment population at the moment are around about 14 to 15 million. So I don't think that we have a demand problem. And then, of course, on the supply side, making sure the needles and syringes and the people to do it has been a challenge for us. We've had uh, over 1,500 people volunteer to come and help us at vaccination stations, particularly over weekends, and we're busy taking them up on that. And there are well over 1,500 health sciences students who have volunteered in various places also, you know, outside of their normal study hours. So we're going to capitalize on those as well. So we are gearing up very fast and as hard as we possibly can to get to 35 million vaccinations done before Christmas. And that's very reassuring, Dr. Chris, but I want to come back to the supply chain if we can. I'm assuming, given what we've witnessed over the past 10 days or so, that you've been looking closely at risk mitigation strategy in terms of making sure that delivery will happen smoothly and efficiently. Should and God willing it doesn't, this uh, resurgence of public violence reoccur? Yeah, so we have a lot of risk management strategies. Part of it is physical security of the products that we're shifting around. Part of it is making sure that it's not visible. We don't say where it is or where we are storing stuff at any point in time. We don't publicize how we move the vaccines around, much like you don't really publicize when you move money and other valuables around. And we uh, don't have all our eggs in one basket. They're in various places in the country. They're distributed along quite a long supply chain so that those various environments can be protected. If we can't get to the sites because the staff can't physically move on the road or you can't get staff to physically get to a site or the, the public can't get to that site, then for that period that you're under attack, if you like, you have to back off a bit, protect uh, what we've got and just go flat out when we are able to get there. But we have a lot of risk mitigation strategies. I'm assuming that you would share concern, concern that all of us have, that the looting that we've witnessed uh, is a potential super spreader event or events. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, there are lots of worries. What's going to happen in those places, we, we can't even begin to imagine. We'll see a a dramadaris, a, a second hump on our, uh, on our COVID infections and admissions, I've no doubt. There are lots of other problems, of course, for the health sector. Being able to feed patients has been a massive problem. Our oxygen supply has been compromised during that time and uh, fortunately appears to have been restored by the companies involved. And they're doing really well to get oxygen to people. 
but medicines were stolen. One whole massive warehouse was completely gutted and uh, everything was removed from it. It was a relatively limited number of vaccines, but that means that all the diabetic, hypertensive, antiretrovirals, everything was completely removed from a large portion of the private sector in, uh, in KwaZulu-Natal. And uh, to replenish that stock and get that moving and those medications out to patients is difficult. But there's yet another problem, and that is that these medications are in the public space and they are available for an illicit market. And if people buy them, they're gonna, they may end up killing themselves with drugs that they don't understand and don't know how to use. They may be expired. There could, could be all kinds of contamination issues that we don't know about. So it, this is something very, very serious for the health sector. And just a final question, Dr. Crisp, vaccine hesitancy. As you now start to ramp up or re-ramp up the process, is there more of it or do you think you're winning the messaging war? Uh, so the evidence is we are definitely seeing less vac- vaccine hesitancy now than we were seeing at the beginning of the program. And that's independent work that's being done not by us, but by third parties, including the Human Sciences Research Council, the Medical Research Council and others. So that's encouraging. We don't always understand the reasons why that may may be, but we do hear anecdotes and they add up to a picture that says to us, as people see their friends being vaccinated and being fine, then they are less hesitant. As people see their loved ones and their friends being sick, they realize that maybe it's not such a good idea to dodge the vaccination and might not be a bad plan after all. And sometimes people just need time to sit and, uh, and ponder whether they would like to be part of it. So I think for whatever reasons people have, sometimes it's religious, sometimes it's personal, sometimes they read the science and they don't understand, uh, they change their minds. We have a, a, a deliberate strategy now to communicate with the, through the Government Information Communication Service. And we're running a website where people can go to find out whether things are fact or fiction. And we are more regularly now putting out information. Very shortly, we will have our dashboard out on what we call adverse events following immunization, which is a global process that we have followed for the last many years in South Africa for childhood vaccines and are now using for these vaccines as well, where we report what adverse events people are seeing and what's being reported to us so that the public can track what's going on as well. So the idea is to be as transparent as possible so that people can make their own choices. But yeah, we're seeing less vaccine hesitancy than we were seeing before. And that's where we are going to leave it. My thanks to Dr. Nicholas Crisp, Deputy Director General at the Department of Health. And that ends episode five of No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join me again on the 4th of August to continue the discussion on the business and economic trends that are shaping your world. If you haven't yet subscribed, it's time to search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.